This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The most famous nominal damages case I know of in recent times, which is uh, Taylor Swift sexual assault case. Do you know that one? Taylor Swift did not have a case at the Supreme Court. But a case before the court on campus speech rights reminded Justice Elena Kagan of Swift's successful suit in 2015 against a Denver radio host for sexual harassment, where the pop star asked for only a dollar in damages. And she said, I'm not really interested in your money. I just want a dollar. And that dollar is going to represent something both to me and to the world of women who have experienced what I've experienced. Kagan said Swift's case was similar to the case before the court, where two former students are suing Georgia Gwinnett College for nominal damages for violating their First Amendment rights. And Justice Amy Coney Barrett seemed to agree. Justice Kagan's question suggested that really what Taylor Swift wanted was, you know, vindication of of the the moral right, the, the legal right that sexual assault is reprehensible and wrong. My guest is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Hal, first tell us a little bit about the case. The case is a First Amendment challenge by students to their college administrators for limiting the right of free speech. It had to do with someone who was an evangelical Christian who wanted to talk about and preach his faith, and the university quenched the speech. Therefore, that precipitated a First Amendment challenge in court, and before it could be finally resolved, their college changed where students could make speeches and broaden the opportunity for students. So in essence, handing the plaintiffs a victory. But then the question was, could they continue to get a court resolution that they were right under the Constitution and would be entitled at least to nominal damages and attorney's fees? And so far, the 11th Circuit had held that the case was moved because there's no longer a continuing controversy because the university had changed its policy and that the idea of just Attorney's fees and nominal damages would not be enough to keep the case alive so that we refuse to address the merits. Does the government or government entities often change policy following lawsuits? The government does not infrequently change its policies. And indeed, a great example of that came up recently when New York City had enacted very tight gun control legislation, which was challenged and they fought it tooth and nail. But as it was getting close to the Supreme Court, New York City backed down and said, well, maybe this was too restrictive and therefore, in essence, mooted out the controversy, giving plaintiffs all that they wanted. And the Supreme Court, in that case, refused to entertain the case by saying it was moot because New York changes policies and was not likely to go back. So this, in some ways, is a cousin case in the sense that it asks what happens when a government changes its policy, not likely to revert to the older policy, can a court nonetheless continue to hear the substance of the claim because it's kept alive by this notion of nominal damages. So it's a narrow case focusing on what really is nominal damages and should the judges have power to consider more constitutional claims in particular if nominal damages are alleged in the case. Before we get back to nominal damages, people might ask, well, why doesn't that case from last term where the justices said it was moot, why doesn't that control here? It's going to be in the justice's mind. In that case, nominal damages were not sought, and so there was not an argument that the case was still alive because of, of nominal damages as there are in the Georgia case. But certainly what this case is about, it's about judicial power. Should judges be able to 
second guess and scrutinize more governmental bodies' actions than they otherwise would be able to. The problem is it's hard to quantify First Amendment speech. In our case, and the plaintiff wasn't allowed to speak. How do you put a dollar value on that? Maybe you could say he had to walk 15 minutes to a different forum, and that would cost time, and time is money, and maybe he should have said, it cost me $35 that I could otherwise be making in order to go to the other forum to give my speech, and the courts would entertain that. They'd have to. It's a traditional $35 injury. Isn't it more practical to say, we know that the restriction on speech damaged you. You couldn't speak. It's hard to put a dollar figure on that. So vindicate your claim by just saying it's a nominal damages. And that's why this has become really a very intriguing case because it doesn't fall really on a conservative versus liberal lines exactly. It falls with the question of how much power should judges have to second guess an administration. And so I think that's the axis under which the decision will be reached in the case. The school officials basically said, look, there's nothing left for the court to do. Is that a strong argument? In one sense, it's true. The only thing left for the court to do is to decide the constitutional question and decide to give the plaintiffs a dollar each if they agree that their First Amendment rights were violated. Um, That is, on the one hand, you can say this is not, we don't really need to, to address the constitutional issue in that context, and that's what Chief Justice Roberts seems to be saying. But on the other hand, there was a very arguably serious First Amendment violation, and we may want to address, courts should arguably address that in order to give guidance for the future and to compensate the individual through nominal damages in light of the fact that their First Amendment rights allegedly were violated. And this case has groups that are often on opposite sides of issues, like the American Civil Liberties Union and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, uniting. And there were just two amicus briefs in support of the college. How odd is that? <laughs> it's very unusual. And I think that any kind of interest group that challenges governmental action knows that its ability to get cases heard before the court depend upon a vehicle for keeping a case alive. And nominal damages is such a vehicle because it recognizes that there are dignitary harms caused by when the government violates your constitutional rights, even if they're not quantifiable. I mean, there were dignitary harms at common laws, trespass, a violation of someone's trademark, and private individuals would get some kind of damages, even if you couldn't prove actual damages. And that's, in essence, what the claim is here, supported by many friends of the court's briefs, And also, I think it's a recognition that we somehow don't trust government when they change policies, that they're not doing it for the wrong reason, namely to avoid a judicial decision as to right or wrong. Taylor Swift came up in the oral arguments. I think it was a little bit of a surprise. Tell us how her name came up. She relatively famously sued a Denver talk show host for sexual improprieties when he had her on the air. And she said, look, I'm not going to try to quantify the kind of damages that you caused me. All I want is a vindication in court that you acted inappropriately. And I'm going to do that by just asking for nominal damages. She could have tried to characterize her injuries in terms of money figure. But she saw instead to say, I'm suing because of principle. I want to be validated legally in that you invaded my autonomy. And she won. So it's become one of the more famous recent cases for nominal damages. 
And so the reason why Justice Kagan suggested this is to show that nominal damages can play a very important role to vindicate an individual's injuries, even if it doesn't look like a traditional compensatory harm, such as I have a broken bone, how much does it cost me to go to a doctor, or my house has been ruined by a flood, how much will it cost to repair it? This instead is a notion that, yes, there's been an invasion of a legal wrong, and that should be sufficient to continue a case, even if it's otherwise would be mooted out because of the change of policy of a government defendant. Now, some of the justices expressed concerns that this could lead to a flood of litigation if you allow these kinds of claims. There is no question that a ruling in favor of the plaintiffs in Georgia will result in increased claims against government action. I don't think there'll be a flood. There's been no showing that there'll be a flood, but absolutely there'll be more because, as you suggested earlier, there are a not insignificant number of times when government is sued. They realize that they have taken an untenable legal position. They'll change course, and if changing course will not get rid of the lawsuit, then courts will more frequently be invited into the dispute. So yes, at the margin, there'll definitely be more suits that are brought, and indeed, because of the fact that nominal damages in some contexts will support an attorney's fees award, a decision in favor of the Georgia plaintiffs would give plaintiffs' attorneys more incentive to find plaintiffs to challenge government action that they think is illegal because they may, at the end of the day, recover a handsome attorney's fees award. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts questioned whether it would make a mockery of the court's mootness doctrine If a plaintiff could stop a judge from throwing out a case by simply asking for a dollar in damages. And he says, well, then you don't have standing. Uh, I've got to throw the case out. You say, oh, well, throw throw in a buck. Uh, And then the judge is supposed to say, yeah, well, everything's fine now. Doesn't that doesn't that make a mockery of our Article three requirements? What he is considering is that it would limit the mootness doctrine. I think that Chief Justice Roberts is right about that, but not totally. What he is saying is that an individual's right to go to court and say, I want you to to say that I was injured just so I can have the satisfaction that you say that I was injured, you know, that is one way to frame the issue. And if you believe in a strong mootness doctrine to limit the courts, that you only want to have the courts opine on these issues of great constitutional moment when they actually have to, then you want to get rid of this case because there is no continuing dispute. So Chief Justice Roberts is right, and this goes to the whole question of judicial power. Judges will be brought into more controversies if they decide that anomal damages is sufficient to keep a case alive. Probably not as many as the court fears, but at least at the margin, more controversies. And so that's why this becomes a question really about judicial power and about how much you trust administrative and bureaucratic governmental entities. And I think that we may see an unusual alliance here. So what kind of alliance of the justices might we see? Well, for instance, we might see Justice Comey and Justice Gorsuch deciding in favor of sympathetic plaintiffs here because of their mistrust of government entities and their sympathy for individuals who might be harmed by a Biden administration, for instance, or who might be harmed because entities are not respecting their religious interests. So it may be some traditional liberals, such as Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, that may make a pact or an alliance in this case with some of the more conservative justices. Because at the end of the day, this is about, do you want these cases to go to court? 
And if you're on the court, you may trust the court more than the political branches to get these issues right. Let's say that the plaintiffs do win here. Would the opinion by the court have to explain how this differs from the Second Amendment case we were talking about? The Second Amendment case did not squarely raise this issue. It is a, it's a, a kind of a cousin of it. It could have raised the issue, but that's not what the court was focusing on um, or the parties were focusing on uh, in the p- procedural posture before the court. Uh, but there will be, my, my prediction is that there will be discussion of that situation because the court will want to explain or give guidance to what should happen if that Second Amendment challenge is raised again. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. The Supreme Court has vacated the convictions of four men, including the one-time king of political intelligence, in an insider trading case involving a scheme to profit from government secrets. The justices sent the case back to the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals to take another look at its ruling in light of the Supreme Court's so-called Bridgegate case. You may remember the case that drew headlines and the scandal that helped to derail former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's run for president. A politically motivated scheme that caused a traffic nightmare on the George Washington Bridge in 2013 and led to two of Christie's aides being convicted of fraud. Bridget Kelly blamed Christie. Just because someone has the title of governor doesn't give them the right to mislead others. It's dishonorable. And it only shows that person for the coward he is. The Supreme Court reversed those convictions last May. But what does that have to do with an insider trading case? Here to answer that question is John Coffey, a professor at Columbia Law School. Jack, tell us about the so-called king of political intelligence. David Blazak was a former employee of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And when he left that agency, he became a consultant for hedge funds because hedge funds follow what that agency does because it determines the profitability of all kinds of treatments that various medical and pharmaceutical companies provide. Now, he learns that the agency is going to cut back on the amount that it will pay for certain kind of cancer treatments. He tells that to his hedge fund clients. They sell short the companies that will be most adversely affected by that new ruling. They make a lot of money. They pay him a lot of money. And he gets convicted under a variety of charges. What was the essence of the prosecution's case against him and three others? The conduct would look to most people like pretty egregious insider trading. Well, you have misappropriated material non-public information. That is, no one at that agency believed they could just freely give this information to people who might want to trade on it. There's all kinds of governmental information that has a dramatic impact on the price of securities. If you know in advance that the Federal Reserve is going to raise or lower interest rates, you can make billions. And thus, the Federal Reserve tries to keep that very, very confidential. And this agency basically had similar rules, but the guys who were friends and sort of alumni of that agency had a way of lunching with their old colleagues and learning what was going on, and they got very valuable information. In the view of the prosecution, they were stealing, embezzling, or misappropriating that information from the agency. But then the big surprise occurs. The Supreme Court decides what's called the Bridgegate case, and it says the government may not have any property interest, any right to hold its confidential information private. 
So if you don't have a property interest, there can't be a property charge. And the case will go back to the Second Circuit to see if a different theory can be worked out that does not offend the Bridgegate decision. Just to be clear, the Bridgegate case did not involve insider trading of any kind. It didn't involve really just corrupt governmental action that was in a form of retaliation against the mayor of Fort Lee because he had not endorsed Governor Christie. And the Supreme Court said, that's not fraud, that's just politics. Explain why the federal prosecutors saw the Bridgegate decision and took the unusual step of asking the Supreme Court to remand the case that they won. They saw the Kelly decision, and they saw the briefs come in from the party that sought certiorari. The Supreme Court granted certiorari on the defendant's theory that Kelly controlled this case. So because the government has suddenly seen the theory of property being narrowed, they know this case is in danger. And the government said, rather than fight on that line of battle, let's get the case remanded down to the Second Circuit, and they can write a revised opinion that ducks that problem. So what's likely to happen at the Second Circuit? Specifically, the key charge here is something called securities fraud under Section 1348. And that has two prongs. And one of those prongs involves a deprivation of property, and the other prong involves defrauding any person. I would suspect that the Second Circuit panel that already did convict this guy will say, well, he's also guilty of that other prong in which you are defrauding some person, even though you're not obtaining money or property. So that's just a a prediction. I'm not certain that I'm right. But I think the government asked the case to be remanded, even though they had won, because they thought a stronger theory could be written now that Kelly was the law. And so the Second Circuit will have no choice but to reverse itself? They'll have to rewrite a decision because uh, they are, if the Supreme Court tells you to reconsider, you better reconsider seriously. Has the Supreme Court limited the take on the expanse of insider trading over the years? No, the Supreme Court has been very much uh, expansive and basically uh, quite supportive of prosecution. They do require that... uh, You have show a a proof of a fiduciary breach if this is going to be done under Rule 10b-5. And that's sort of the irony of this case, because the prosecutors, while they used Rule 10b-5, used several other theories that allow them to outflank the need for showing a breach of fiduciary duty. And now those other theories are shown to have a problem, because you've got to show at least some deprivation of property. And right now, The government uh, is not going to be able to convince the Supreme Court that confidential information of a government agency about what it's about to do amounts to property that it can can have stolen or embezzled. Do you agree with that, that confidential, you know, government information shouldn't be considered? I think we have to protect that. It'll be protected if you get it through computer hacking or if you violate the espionage statute by just stealing defense secrets. But I think lots of information is extremely valuable and would wreak havoc with the government. Think of the Federal Reserve Board. If people could find out a week early that the Federal Reserve is going to raise or lower interest rates by defined amount, there would be a phenomenal amount of informed trading by people who would know information that the rest of the market would not know. You know, when Preet Bharara was U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, we saw crackdown insider trading How has that Mm -hmm. fared under the Trump administration? Well, the U.S. attorneys have still won cases. The Southern District is 
a sort of independent agency. It calls itself the Sovereign District of New York, and they haven't let the the government in Washington directly control everything they do. Uh, and this was a case that was uh, prosecuted years ago. The decision came down from the Second Circuit on the last day of 2019. So this was a prosecution that was brought before Trump. The Trump administration has not been uh, particularly vocal about not bringing insider trading cases, other kind of cases that they're much more conservative about. So I think the Southern District has persisted in bringing some insider trading cases, but not nearly as many as were brought under President Obama. Do you have any expectations about what will happen under a President Biden? I think we're going to go back to the old pattern. I think the Democrats and most of the country doesn't see any value in insider trading, and they want those cases prosecuted, or at least the big cases prosecuted. And this was a case in which an awful lot of money was made. And just to sum it up, you think that Blazak will end up with a prison sentence even after the Second Circuit rules? Well, I'm not going to predict the sentencing, but that is the normal sentence, that even first offenders usually get a prison term when they are convicted of insider trading. I think that the Second Circuit can write a decision that skirts around the problems in the Kelly case and the Bridgegate case because they can find something not involving property was violated, such as a defrauding of an individual. You can say the agency was defrauded and cheated because they weren't allowed to uh, per- persist in keeping their uh, internal processes secret, even though it wasn't property. You could say you defrauded the agency. Uh, we'll see how they write it. I mean, maybe they decide they can't write a decision, but I think they've been given the opportunity. And the U.S. Attorney's Office thought if they got a second chance, they would be able to write a decision that would, would withstand an appeal based on Kelly and the Bridgegate case. What about the three other people who were involved? Well, some of them have pled guilty already, but they're all in the same boat. Those that are up there in the Supreme Court uh, are all in the same boat. Blazak was the critical person because he was the person who got the information from the agency and gave it to the hedge funds. Uh, the hedge funds are basically doing what they're usually doing, trying to pay experts to get them information that the public doesn't know. So the case now returns to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. We'll keep you updated on what happens there. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jack. That's Professor John Coffey of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.